Well, welcome to FCC, and it's good to speak to you this morning. Um, welcome to you who are watching from, uh, from City Campus and online. Um, if you're here, though, in Williton, you have the privilege of seeing me about 20 pounds slimmer <laughs> <laughs> because the camera puts on some weight. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've been talking through the book of Galatians so far, and I think just to recap, we've established that, that Paul has now asserted his authority, saying that it came by revelation through Christ. And then the Judaizers in the church had infiltrated the church of the Galatians to add these extra requirements of the law, saying you need to be circumcised. And then Paul's actually dealing with this, and he's confronted even the, the high levels of the church to say that we can only be justified by faith. And then last week, we looked at this, this grand theological anchor, if you like, how Paul goes through the Bible, through the times of Abraham, um, and then through the times of Moses, and said that the, the, the promise that was given through Abraham was better than the law given to Moses. And so this promise is something that we can receive by faith. And so now we get to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, uh, to for chapter four, verse seven, and we're just gonna read this together. I'm going to read it through the 1984 edition of the NIV. So if you've got your Bible, could you please turn with me and we'll read this together. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse 23. Um, it's a bit small now. I, I get what Pastor Benny feels when he's trying to read <laughs> tiny text. Um, so verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter four. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Amen. Now, I don't really know when I actually became a Christian, but I remembered that on the 22nd of July, 1990, my family and I walked into church for the first time. Um, and we grew up as nominal Buddhists, or maybe you could say cultural Buddhists because my grandparents were Buddhists and our household was Buddhist. And when I came into church for the first time, as soon as we walked through the door, the children's church direct, director snaffled me away because I was 12 years old. And maybe she thought that if she separated me from the rest of my family, she could brainwash me. But 
<laughs> we went into kids' church. And when I came out of kids' church and I found the rest of my family, she said, well, there they are receiving Jesus into their hearts. Would you like to do the same? And I have no idea. All I thought was, gee, my grandparents are going to be mad. <laughs> so I just did whatever my parents and my brother were doing, and we repeated the sinner's prayer, and we received the Jesus into our hearts. And I really didn't really understand what, was do what we were doing back then. But I can see now that, and I believe now that I'm 100% saved. Hallelujah. But one of the things I've noticed that happens in the church is that the preacher stands here, which I'll probably do at the end of the service, and give people an invitation to receive Christ. And we say, it's a free gift. You don't have to do anything to receive Christ. And, and it's, it's as free as getting a cup of coffee free after the church service. But you know what? That didn't gel with my experience because the longer I stayed in the church, the more I realized that people wanted to put rules and regulations all around how you live out your Christian faith. Um, so thankfully, no one told me I needed to get circumcised, but <laughs> the, legal, the legalism, if you like, and the rules came in a different way. So people would say, you know, you shouldn't be listening to that sort of music. And so the pastor came to my house and rifled through all my cassette tapes. Um, this is how old I am, by the way, cassette tapes. Um, for the young people, <laughs> it's like this little thing with a ribbon through it and you can play music. Um, and then they, they said, oh, you can't play with these toys because they're evil and they're demonic. So they came and destroyed all my toys. And, uh, and my mum now wished that we had kept them because they're vintage. You know, you can sell them for a lot of money on eBay these days. <laughs> they said, you can't wear thongs to church uh, because it's dishonoring to the Lord. And I think by thongs, they meant the footwear, thankfully. But <laughs> you can't wear thongs to church. It's dishonoring. And then they, when I grew up, they said, you can't drink alcohol. And that's why I've, I've noticed when people do communion at church, they don't talk about the bread and the wine. They say the bread and the juice. <laughs> because <laughs> bread and wine, you can't drink wine. And so they also said to me, oh, you've got to pray and read your Bible and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to serve God. And I realized that I became a serving addict. Even when I was in year 12, and you know, when you're in year 12, uh, you should really be studying, by the way. <laughs> but you should really be studying hard. And I, I, I felt like if I just serve God, then he will help me get into uni. And so I served really hard. I was in worship ministry. I was in youth ministry. And it was tiring. And I barely scraped through. Um, but before long, I realized that to be a Christian, I needed to follow a set of rules. It started out as a free gift. But then there's all these other things you've got to do on top of it. And outwardly, outwardly, I felt like I knew how to play the Christian game. I, I put on my church face. I acted all holy. I did all the acceptable things. I even got up to high levels of leadership in the church. Hallelujah. <laughs> but inwardly, my spiritual condition was dry. What started out as a delight had become a duty and all I was doing was going through the motions. And it was only about 12 years ago that I once again rediscovered the gospel of grace, that what started out in receiving by faith should continue by faith. And that was when my spiritual life was reinvigorated. So I often tell people I got born again again. 
And this is why I think it's important, and Paul says it's important, we have to keep teaching and repeating, getting the gospel into our head and our hearts, because you're never too old, too, never too mature to be, to be gripped by the gospel again. So what I'm sharing here is probably typical for many people. We like rules and structure. We like our religion to have rules and structure because it allows us to have some form of control. You see, control appeals to my ego because it turns me inwards and makes me think, if I do this, I can get a result. We can boast in our own strength. And the great Bible teacher, David Pawson, says it like this. We tend to take religion and make it an effort. We take what is an offer and turn it into a demand. We take what God meant to be a delight and make it a duty. It's a constant temptation and even Christians can do it. Unfortunately, the Galatians were doing it. They were going back from Christianity to Judaism, back from the freedom of Christ to the bondage of the commandment, back from trusting him the whole way in everything to trying to be good and it's a very backward step. So what begins in faith ends up in rules and regulations. What started as a promise devolves again into law. So today we're going to see how we keep moving forward in faith in this passage, and I wanna share from this thought, from rules to relationship, from rules to relationship. So that's the title of today's message. And from this passage, I wanna glean three thoughts with you. Firstly, enslavement through the law, secondly, justification through the son, and thirdly, freedom through relationship. I'll say that again, enslavement through the law, justification through the son, and freedom through relationship. So firstly, enslavement through the law. I like this bit of it because I'm a lawyer, I like law things, and in fact, I have to say, after reading Galatians, I kind of had hard feelings towards Paul because he says so many bad things about the law. But <laughs> the question for us is, if salvation is by grace, then why have the law at all? If it's a free promise, and if God gave Abraham a great promise, then why did he then, years later, give Moses 10 commandments, 613 regulations, um, and, and, and essentially delivered the law to Israel? So we need to ask this question, what does the law do? And I've thought about this from a lawyer's perspective, and here are five things. Firstly, the law tells us that we are wrong. The law tells us that we are sinners. You wouldn't know what sin was unless the law defined it. It marks the boundaries of what you can and what you can't do, and by doing this, it introduces the concept of violation and transgression. So that's what the law does. You transgress the bounds of what is acceptable. Secondly, the law is unbending, is inflexible, it's unforgiving. By its nature, law must be rigid. It sets the same standard for everyone. It doesn't take into account special circumstances or compassion. And you know, as a, a migration lawyer, I see this all the time. People who want to stay in Australia and they say, oh, but you know, I pay my taxes. If I leave Australia, I'll be sent back to to all sorts of horrible places. I just can't do it. I need to stay here. But the law actually sets aside certain requirements that must be met. You can't meet them, you can't get the visa. It's as simple as that. There are no exceptions. Thirdly, the law is punitive. To make sure that you observe the requirements of the law, it must dish out a punishment. 
Isn't that right? So that's how you ensure compliance with the law. It prevents people from crossing the line. Fourthly, the law restrains. The law disciplines. Can you imagine a society where there was no rules? You'd be driving all over the road. People will be just taking whatever they wanted. So because we have laws, a positive effect of the law is it restrains. It, it stops people from acting out however they want. And lastly, and interestingly, I think the law shapes our culture. In fact, the law is a bedrock of culture and society. It entrenches a set of values and norms, and it says this is how a group of people should behave. Um, and this is what actually give, gave Israel its distinctive. Um, they were once a people like nomads wandering through a desert, and then when they came to Sinai, God gave them the law, and once they were not a people, now they were a people. The laws define the way they should act towards one another. They became a culture and a society. But if you think about that, the, the negative of that is the culture can also be a snare. Culture can also be a snare because we accept things as right, not because the scripture says so, we accept things as right because our culture says so. Um, one of the things, for example, coming from a Buddhist background is we think, well, there's no way a Buddhist can be a Christian because a Christian is a Western religion. So that sort of thing held me back. And so in one sense, the law can actually help, it can actually cause you to bring your own cultural bias to the reading of the Word of God. And I think that's why the Judaizers were so opposed to what Paul was saying, because they were culturally ensnared. Now, in this passage that we've read, Paul gives us two pictures of what the law did and how it played a role in our salvation. So Galatians chapter 3, 23 to 24 says, before faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The, excuse me, the first picture that Paul gives us is that the law is a prison guard. The law is a prison guard put in charge over us to lead us to Christ. Why? You see, you can look at it this way. Until you were held prisoner, you couldn't really experience real freedom. Another way of saying it is that you need to know you're a sinner before you can experience forgiveness. Another way of saying it is, unless you know the bad news, you can't really know the good news. And so that's why God gave us the law. To imprison us to show that we can't, we can't get out on our own effort, it reveals to us how short we would be in ever reaching God's standards and that we should never justify ourselves. The second thing that the law does the second picture of the law that Paul gives us is that of a trustee or a guardian. So in chapter four, verse one to three, Paul says, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. So the first picture shows that, shows that our efforts are never enough. And the second picture is actually showing us that we should not trust ourselves. Now, as a lawyer, 
I actually do a lot of work with clients and their estates, so we do a lot of uh, will drafting. And I've realized that the richer you are, the more worried you are about what your kids are going to do with all your money. <laughs> so I've got clients who, who have you know, millions and millions of dollars in net worth, and they're constantly trying to work out how to protect it. And I, the first thing I say to them is, but you're dead, so let go of it. But, but they won't do that. They want to make sure they protect their legacy. <laughs> I remember doing a will for a guy who said, you know, Lester, thank you for doing my will, but um, you know, I, this has only become an, a problem for me in the last five years when I got into money. Before that, I was living a carefree life, and now I have to worry about all these things. And then after he signed the will, he said, well, anyway, you can't contact me for the next six months because I'm going to sail around Australia in my yacht. And I thought, I wish I had a yacht. But anyway, the point is, the more you have, the more you've got to protect. And one of the things that um, we, we think about when we're drafting rules is sometimes we put trusts in place, meaning we're not going to give um, the estate to an 18-year-old kid because we don't know what they're going to do with it. They might spend it on drugs, alcohol. You know, that's, this is what actually goes on in people's heads. So I said, well, we can put in a trust. And so what happens is you have someone else control the estate until you, your child reaches the age you think they're mature enough. And I said, what age is that? Someone said, 40 years old. <laughs> I said, you're stuffed. If you, if you can't, if you, can't um, you know, prepare your kid to maturity by the time they're 40, you've got a problem. <laughs> but what's the implication? You know, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot that God has already promised through Abraham. And we can't really be trusted with that in our own strength. And so um, we can't even be trusted to deal with our, our, the people around us fairly and justly, let alone to be a blessing to the nations. And so Paul says that not only are we like immature children, we're actually no better than slaves because the guardians, the trustees in the Roman times, they were actually slaves themselves. So we're not even better than slaves. So what is the law meant to do? Well, it's really to bring us to the end of ourselves and lead us to Christ. Now, before I finish this thought, I wanna go to an interesting phrase here that Paul uses. Um, in chapter four, verse three, he says, we're in slavery under the basic principles of the world. What does that mean? In other translations, uh, Paul uses the phrase, or it's rendered as, the elemental principles of the world or the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So that's, that phrase makes me scratch my head a bit when I'm reading my Bible. It's quite an unfamiliar terminology. And one commentator says that it's actually referring to the elements that make up the world. So this is stuff of, of ancient literature, earth, air, fire, water. And usually in ancient literature, when they talk about these things, it's always associated with worship. And so the commentator says, there is actually one word that seems to combine these elementary principles with the sense of being bound. And that word is superstition. Superstition. And so I thought about that and I thought, well, most of us would say we're superstitious, are we? You know, we, we don't, we're not superstitious. I mean, uh, I, I own a black cat. I live in house number 13. I constantly walk under ladders. 
Um, not a good idea, by the way, with the walking under the ladder stuff, but <laughs> the other stuff's okay. Um, I don't throw salt over my shoulder. I'm not superstitious. But you know you can actually fall from grace back into law through superstition. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> and maybe I'm the only one who does this, so if I am, then I'm an outlier, so you guys are really good. But <laughs> back in the day before I lead worship on Sundays, I made sure that every morning I did my quiet time, every morning, just for that week, so that when I get up here on stage on Sunday, the worship's gonna be really, really good. Uh, worship leaders, have you done that before? <laughs> no one's gonna admit that, okay. <laughs> um, maybe you've got a big test or an exam coming up, and in your mind you think, well, if I really pray diligently every day, God will help me through that test and the, the exam. Maybe you're waiting for a new promotion or a business opportunity to come up and you've never really tithed or put money into the offering bag, but you know, the Bible says give and it'll come back to you, so I'm gonna start giving regularly until my promotion happens. It's almost like if I do this, I will get that. And maybe you're going through a relationship breakdown or challenges in your life. You don't really come to church regularly, but now that you're going through stuff, you wanna come into this atmosphere of the house of God and maybe if I keep coming to church regularly, God will bless me and bring me a breakthrough. You know, doing your quiet time, praying, giving, fellowshipping, and all these things are good. But we fall into the realm of superstition when we see them as cause and effect. I do good to get good. That's not the grace of God. See, when we do that, we fall into the bondage of the law again because nothing we do is ever going to earn God's favor. So, if you've done that, be set free this morning, church. <laughs> be set free. How do we be set free? How do we escape from the prison of the law? Well, it's only through knowing the gospel, knowing that it is only by resting and trusting in God and what He has done for us, not what we can do for Him. And so this brings me to my second point. We are enslaved through the law, but we're justified through the Son. We're justified through the Son. So chapter three, verse 24 says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Justification by faith is the gospel. And it is something that we must remind ourselves over and over again so that we do trust in God's work and not our own, so that we don't go backwards and again get bound by the law. It bears repeating, what does it mean to be justified? Well, it's a legal word, again, and it means that whatever behaviors or actions you've done, when you're justified, those behaviors are viewed differently. Those behaviors are viewed differently. Or you might say, God sees the behaviors differently. I'll give you an example, you're driving, you're speeding, to the, you're speeding and you're driving really, really fast and the cops pull you over. Excuse me, sir, why are you driving above the speed limit? Well, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but see my wife in the back of the car, she's in labor, she's about to pop at any moment, I need to get to the hospital. What does the police do? They don't, oh well, here's your ticket, sir. Sometimes they might even escort you to the hospital if, if they've got the time. Because what's happened is your actions are now justified in the eyes of the police. 
It doesn't change the fact that you're speeding. It doesn't change that your actions have broken the law. But now in the eyes of the police, you are justified. Does that make sense? And so justification, being justified by God, doesn't mean that your behavior, your actions have changed. You have still sinned, okay? You have still broken the law, but God's view of your behavior has changed. And that's good news. He sees you as righteous even though you've done wrong. And not only does he say that, he says, I don't see you as a sinner anymore, I see you as a child of God. Now look at what Galatians chapter three, verse 26 says. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. And in chapter four, verse four, it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And I love the rich imagery here. When we put our faith in Christ, God redeems us because he thinks we are valuable and precious, and so he buys us at a price, and he has clothed us with Christ. So your behavior hasn't changed, but when you're clothed in Christ, when you're baptized or immersed in Christ, God sees you as righteous in Christ because he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And this picture of being clothed, this picture of, the, of, um, uh, of wearing Christ is quite deliberate because in Roman times, there was a difference between being a child and being a son. And I'm sorry about the sexist language, but you know, back then there was um, a patriarchal society, but there was a difference between a child and a son. Because when you're a child, um, you, you're not actually receiving the full status as a son yet. So you'd be a child until a particular age, and then in Roman times, the father would adopt you. And that doesn't necessarily mean bringing someone else in from outside the family, but the rights of adoption is actually referring to a, a ceremony where you take off your old childish clothes and the father gives you a new a new robe, a robe of manhood, if you like, a robe that says you're now my son and now the estate belongs to you and, and the rights of, of my business belongs to you, everything belongs to you and you will inherit it. So when we put off our old clothes, we're now, after we put off our old clothes, we're now putting on the clothes of adoption. And David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, have you followed this argument? Have you really seen yourself in Christ? Do not simply look at yourself, look at yourself in Him, because that is where you are, and therefore you are constituted a righteous person. That is how God looks at you. God is no longer looking at you as a sinner. That is the whole point of the gospel, and you must never look at yourself as a sinner again. You are not a sinner. You are a child of God. You are a child who fails and who falls, but you're not a sinner any longer. When a Christian fails and falls, he does so in the realm of the family, in the realm of love. Amen, I love that. So this should also change the way we see each other because we should see each other in Christ. Not Jew nor Greek, we have a new cultural identity, the culture of the family of God. We're not bound by the rules of our old culture. 
We're not masters or servants. We're not bound by our social status or our standing in the eyes of the world. Not even male nor female. Gender is not critical in the eyes of God. We are all one in Christ. Um, sorry, that last point, just be careful. I, I didn't mean, don't overread that. But <laughs> we're all one in Christ. We're free from the limitations of culture, social status, and even our gender. So that's good news. How do we maintain this freedom we have through God, in, in God. But how can we maintain this freedom that Christ, God has purchased for us? So the last point I have is freedom through relationship. The key to freedom is being in relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. Chapter four, verse four to six says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, these three verses have a parallel. It says, God sent his son into the world to redeem us so that we can have full rights of sonship. But the, the other side of the coin is, God has sent his spirit not into the world, but into our hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So the point is this. It is one thing to objectively know that you're a child of God, but it is entirely a different thing to have that subjective experience of being a child of God. Does that make sense? I'll try to illustrate it this way. The other day, a friend of mine um, made this, this amazing dinner called Mayak eggs. It's a Korean dish. It's like a soft-boiled egg that's marinated in soy. In fact, the Korean translation is so delicious, it's called eggs of addiction, eggs of addiction. <laughs> and, and so we were preparing dinner, and, and my wife had taken it out of the fridge, and it's basically these soft-boiled eggs sitting on, on top of purple rice, and when you break the eggs, the, the yolk is so gooey and unctuous, and it's just glacially dripping over this warm, steamy rice. And as we were watching these eggs on the plate, and after a hard day's work, my salivary glands were working overtime. <laughs> and I just wanted to lay my hands on my dinner. But as it turns out, as I was about to reach for it, uh, my wife grabs the eggs, and she goes, we need to take a picture. <laughs> so so she's, she's posing these eggs in the correct light, and I'm staying there, sliver, sliver. And, and she's, she's, oh, is this the right light? No, that's not good. And then she didn't like the background of a stony, cold bench top, so she took it into the dining room where she set it on, on top of a nice, wooden, warm table. And I followed her from room to room in the house, <laughs> waiting for her to get the perfect shot for the gram. How many of you know those eggs were mine? <laughs> but I waited three full minutes to experience my eggs. <laughs> That's what it's like. You might know your status as a son, but God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, the seat of our affections, so that we can fully experience what that relationship with the Father is like. And I love that this year has been all about come Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit the thought in our head needs to sink into our hearts. And the Holy Spirit 
is what causes us to experience that fullness of relationship. Do you know what else the Holy Spirit does? And ironically, after all we've talked about the law, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and he writes the law into our hearts. And this is what Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. That's the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. But you'll say, Lester, you spend so much time telling us that the law has imprisoned us. You've told us how God has justified us and bought our freedom. So why are you talking about the law being written on our hearts now? You're confusing me. Isn't the law opposed to grace? And in Paul's words, he says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. See, freedom doesn't mean you can do whatever you like. That's a very Western and woke notion, isn't it? Imagine I'm a 43-year-old Asian, bad eyesight. My contacts are very thick. You can't see that, but they are. My joints are starting to give way a bit. I'm all 95 kilograms at the trough of my fitness. And I say to you, I still have a dream, you know. I dream of playing in the NBA one day. <laughs> hey, don't laugh. <laughs> I used to play league basketball in high school. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to make my dream one day. Do you think I can make it? <laughs> Thank you, polite person. <laughs> Freedom is not necessarily the absence of restrictions. And then you say, well, freedom is, is what you get when you subject yourself to restrictions because it's about discipline. You know, like when your parents forced you to play piano every day for one hour every day, smacking your fingers with a ruler until you got it right. Because now you can play like Nick. You're free to play whatever you want because of all the years of discipline and, and restriction. Well, the reality is that freedom is not about the presence of restrictions, nor is it about the absence of restrictions. Freedom is actually about the presence of the right restrictions. Freedom is about the presence of the right restrictions. And Tim Keller says it this way, think of a fish. Because the fish absorbs oxygen from, from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is free from the river and put on the grass to explore, the freedom to move and soon to even live is destroyed. The fish is not more free, but less free. It, it cannot honor the reality of its nature. And the same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature. What is our nature? Well. Our nature is that we're sons of God and we're supposed to look like the Father. We can experience the full extent of that, that sonship 
And this is the freedom that Paul was talking about when he says, um, we now can live by the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus and be free from the law of sin and death. And the greatest example of the complexity of freedom is actually love. What? Yes, love requires us to surrender all kinds of freedoms, all sorts of individual rights. In fact, the more intimate the love relationship, the less independent you become. In fact, you you start to become interdependent and all the happily married people say amen. (laughs) So through the gospel, we have entered into a relationship of intimacy with our Father, which ultimately calls us to lay down our own agenda, our own independence, so that we might truly enjoy the freedom that's consistent with the reality of our own nature. Now, I'll try to explain this even simpler, and I got this from the Prince of Preachers, Dr. Dan Mo. <laughs> Can I call him that? Oh, that title's already taken, never mind. <laughs> but he told me, I'll, I'll help you understand this, so I've taken his analogy and I'll, um, I've sort of tweaked it a bit. So, back to the car. Imagine if you're, I'm driving a car and I told you my eyesight's not that great. Um, sometimes when I get excited, I'm going to the church, you know, I drive a bit faster and I break the speed limit. So what happens when I'm in control of the car? Well, I break the law constantly. Okay, now you might say, it's okay, Lester, you don't need to drive. In fact, my wife likes to drive, so she's always saying, Lester, let me drive. So I let her drive. She's not such a great driver either. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Uh, She told me I could say this. I'm best at driving when I'm driving you up the wall. (laughs) But but she gets distracted. Sometimes she slams on the brakes really fast. Sometimes she veers to the left. And, And, you know, if I was to try to not break the law sitting in her car, we would also together break the law. And I think that's what God meant when he said you can't put your trust in other people. You can't put your trust in your career. You can't put your trust in money. You can't put your trust in your popularity. Those things are called idolatry. And so Dan says to me, the best way to show how you fulfill the law through Christ is this. You sit in the back seat and let Jesus drive the car. Because Jesus perfectly observes every law so that you are also fulfilling every law by sitting in his car. And so we say, Jesus, take the wheel. And this is really the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about religious superstitions. It's not about our effort or our trying. It's about our trusting in God. It's about our relationship with the Father. And in this gospel, we see love, law, freedom, surrender, relationship all coincide. You know, in culture today, religion can either be very hardline. It's all about rules and regulations. Or in in the Western society, we see a very individualized religion. It's all about love and inclusivity. So people are really asking, well, people are really saying, well, we want a religion of, of, of love or we want a religion of law. But you know, in God's nature, neither law or love is more prominent. His nature is both of those. 
He encompasses both law and love without compromising either. Remember in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses asked God, show me your glory, he's saying, God, show me all that you are, your substance. What makes you God? What is undeniably your nature? And so what does God do? He puts Moses into a cleft of the rock and he passes over Moses, proclaiming his name. And he says, his name is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithful to a thousand generations, forgiving wickedness and sins, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What does that mean? He's, he's almost like saying, I'm a forgiving God who doesn't forgive. But what we need to really understand that God is both a God of love and a God of fury, a God of justice and a God of mercy, of holiness and compassion. And only in the gospel to do all these things come together. And how does that happen? Well, it happens because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Now, I like what the Scottish minister Horatius Bonar says about this. He says, by Christ's substitution, especially at the moment of his death upon the cross, and only at that moment, God's love and law are both satisfied. On the cross and only on the cross, the love and the standards of God perfectly and brilliantly coincide and shine forth together. Jesus was smitten to satisfy the justice of God since that stroke paid for sins. And at the same time, he was smitten to satisfy the love of God since that stroke secured our salvation, that God might be both just and justifier of those who believe. Both law and love on the cross have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept his ground. No, each one has come forth from the conflict honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this love of God, so large, so lofty, so intense, so self-sacrificing. Yet never has been law so pure, so broad, so glorious, so inexorable. There has been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered by either. They have been satisfied to the full. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness. Love has never been more truly love, and law has never been more truly law than in the moment Christ died for us. Uh, when I think about that, my heart just leaps to know what Jesus has done on the cross. Because of his substitutionary death on the cross, we have been justified, we have new clothes, we are no longer slaves, but we enjoy the full privileges of sonship and we have received the Holy Spirit in our hearts, not only writing the laws of God into our hearts, but crying out, Abba, Father, so that we can enjoy the fullness of that relationship with Him as our Father, and then inviting us once again to fresh surrender. Through the gospel, and only through the gospel, can we move forward from rules to relationship. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the amazing work on the cross. Jesus died fully righteous, taking on all the penalty of our sin, that today we can be clothed in Christ, the righteousness of God. And now we are called sons and daughters of the Most High God. Thank you for that amazing work you've done. Holy Spirit, thank you for, for writing your laws on our hearts and now causing our hearts to birth forth with joy in surrendering. The joy of knowing that we are children of the Most High God. Father, thank you for everything you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And City Campus, I'll just release you now. Uh, for those of us in this auditorium, um, I feel that God is speaking to two groups of people. Um, first, you may never have heard of a religion like this before. Other religions have founders and teachers, but only Christianity offers a substitute. Someone who can fulfill the requirements of the law and justifies before God. It doesn't change our behavior, it hasn't changed our actions, but it's changed God's view of us and who we are. And maybe you've realized that you've you know, put your trust in other things like your career, your family, your own uh, abilities, and you've got to a dead end in life, the very dead end you've been trying to avoid all this time. And now you feel like you're a slave to those things. I want to encourage you today um, that you can know the experience of freedom of being a child of God. And if that's you, and you've never, um, been a, you've never experienced this gift of God's grace, um, and you really want to give that a shot today, you want to see what it's like to give your life to Christ, to become a Christian, um, could I encourage you just to quickly slip up your hand so that we can include you in a prayer? Is there anyone like that who wants to make that decision? to give their lives to Christ, the only one who substitutes his life for ours so that we can be holy and righteous before him. Is there anyone like that who'd like to do that this morning? Let's take another moment. Is anybody want to receive Jesus into their hearts? It truly is a free gift. I was joking at the start about what happens after, but it really is a free gift. And, and it's... You know, I, I don't think I can look back and regret. Um, I am who I am today because of the grace of God. Um, you know, it's changed the way I view relationships. It's changed the way I view my work. It's changed the way I view my life. And that gift is available to you today. So if there's anyone like that who would like to receive Christ into their hearts, um, if you can quickly raise up your hand. Thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, let's give the sister encouragement. Thank you. Um, the second group of people um, that I want to speak to is those of you who have been Christians for a while like me, and you feel like you're still bound by sins and addictions that you just can't shake. Uh, your faith has become a bit of a duty rather than a delight. Uh, you've fallen back to religious superstitions and formula. And, and you've forgotten that when you fail and fall, you're actually failing and falling in the realm of family. You feel excluded and, and you're just backing off from God. You can't break free in your own strength, but only by trusting in what Jesus has done. 
and you feel like you're, you're in that sort of mode today, I want to encourage you as the musicians come and as, they, as we worship to this song, I am a child of God, that God will remind you once again of what it means to be His child. And I just want to take a few moments. If you want to come up to the front, you can. And there'll be a prayer team who will pray with you um, that the Holy Spirit might just awaken your sense of sonship once again, that you might cry out, Abba, Father. So let's just stand to our feet as the worship team leads us in this song.